Okay, so I'll start with a story. Um, maybe a, a little fact that some of you might know, maybe some of you don't. But so all of my family, including both my mom's side and my dad's side, are from this little bitty town outside of St. St. Joe, Missouri, St. St. Joseph. Anybody been to St. Joe, Missouri? It's north of Kansas City, about an hour. And so if you go, you know, northwest of that, uh, of that town, there's this little bitty town called Union Star, Missouri. It's a blip on the map. It's literally a mile long on the highway. It goes from 65 to 35 for one mile, and then it, then it jumps back up. And all of my family, my mom's side, my dad's side, both sets of grandparents, so four sets of grandparents, um, all went to school together in the same area, knew each other growing up. All my aunts and uncles went to school together, knew each other. Um, I have great-grandparents buried in that same area, great-great-grandparents, a, f- a couple, buried in that same area. So it's pretty weird. It's, it's, it's like uh, I was talking to um, Tara Moore. She has a similar thing in a small town Oklahoma that all of her family's from. But what's interesting about it is, uh, you know, I... I can walk around that town, and, and there's, there's people that have moved into there because it's 20 minutes outside of St. Joe, and it's a lot cheaper to live there. But for the most part, if anybody's lived there for a while, they know my family, and they've probably heard of me. Like when Ryan and I were living in California, we would come visit my parents, and we would make the paper that we were visiting <laughs> from California, yes. Um, and, uh, mainly because I was related to the person who wrote the paper. So I'm like related to a third of the town. Uh, one story, we were in... We were had had to have some some stuff notarized at the bank when we were there, and so we went down to the bank. They've always had a bank and a post office. There's been other things that have come and gone throughout the years, but always a bank and a post office. So we're at the bank, and um, we're going through the paperwork, and we're, she's looking at our fees, and it, they were fees that had to do with our house in California, and she was like, oh, my gosh, they're ripping you off, you know, and I'm going, no, this is normal. And then so about 30 minutes into the conversation, she goes, you know we're related, right? I said, no. Yeah, she goes, yeah, I'm your mom's cousin. So my, my second cousin here at, here at the bank. So that, this kind of stuff happens all the time. And, and you know, it's, it's really cool to know kind of where you're from and to know your history. My kids on Memorial Day got to take flowers around to all their dead relatives. And you ask them, we weren't, Ryan and I were there. We dropped our kids off with our parents to, to go celebrate our anniversary. And, um, and they're like, I said, so how many flowers you to put on did you put on graves and Kyla's like so many you know because hers it was hot and they were walking around like this this cemetery with putting flowers all over all these graves and you know and I know that as a teenager that's kind of like it's hot and how many more do we have to do but like when she gets older she'll get to look back and go wow all of my family like I know about my history it's all comes from this you know my dad's side comes from this this town and uh, it's pretty unique. And so, so there's something, there's something, uh, something about knowing who you are and where you're from, and knowing your history that just kind of grounds you in something deeper. And I, I bring that up because I think that there is a thing called orphan Christianity, where it's trying to live out our faith in Christ, disconnected from the history of our extended family in Christ. And, and, and it, so knowing church history isn't like a requirement, obviously, to be a Christian. Uh, and it's something that we don't do, usually learn right away as followers of Jesus. We, but I think it's something that we should grow to appreciate and, and love. Because if you think about, like, there are people 2,000 years ago that when they came to know who Jesus is, it changed the way they lived and they started to live for Christ. And they had questions about how to do that. And they sought the Lord on, okay, how do we live for Him? And, you know, they didn't get to walk around with what we get to walk around with. And so, you know, how did they process? How did they live this out? How did they wrestle with the things they wrestled with? How did they deal with um, different beliefs that were coming at them? And, and so the Apostles' Creed comes, as we've talked about, in this time to really give some, some solid answers to what we believe, to bring unity and clarity to what the church believed. But it also did something pretty, pretty amazing, I think, that we could certainly benefit from. And that is to 
to confess what they believed, in, in, in another way, to confess the narrative by which they live. Um, and so, when, when, you, when you know who you are and you know what your, what your, your history is and you know the, the people of God and you know um, kind of how the church has wrestled with these things, it just bring, it, it deepens something in you. It helps you realize, okay, I'm not, the only, I'm not the first one to try to figure out how to live for Jesus in a, in a you know, in a um, civilized environment, right? There's been people that have done that for years and years and years. We're not the first to figure this out. And, and, and there's something about that that just helps me go, okay, I need to relax about some things. I need to, I need to figure out what, what they process, what they went through, but I also am not the first one to discover this. Um, and sometimes evangelicals, that would be us, are, are sometimes the worst at that because we, we minimize things and we just try to, you know, what, what's the minimum I need to know? And so I'll talk a little more about that later. But um, so, so there's this grounding effect. And then, like I said, there's this confessing the narrative by which they live. And you and I are bombarded with worldly narratives constantly thrown at us that are trying to um, trying to get us to live for a certain thing and and one way to 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 kind of start to be aware of this I, th- I I think that going forward as followers of Jesus in our in our world today in our culture it's going to be really imperative to to learn how to discern different narratives that are being thrown at us and so one, one way to do this is to pay attention to like when anytime a, a commercial is selling something, what is it they're selling you? What, what is it they're saying that you need in order to buy their product, right? So you see, and I got nothing against beer, but you see beer commercials and they're always, like, it's like they're selling great memories and experiences with your friends that's what life is about it, you know you got to go to work work is work but after work you get to get together with your friends have a beer and have the time of your life and it's about cherishing those moments and those experiences and so like what is it they're selling you like the purpose of life is and they're selling something you know you walk by you walk go to a mall and you walk by a store and you're going to see there's going to be narratives that are just thrown at you you need this the purpose of life is to, and so it, it makes sense that you need this product in order to, to have a fulfilling life, and, and there's just this stuff that's being thrown at us constantly, and, and the early church got to um, not only have clarity and unity about what they believed, right, because they're dealing with different beliefs about Jesus and heresies that are popping up, and so they needed something to, to, to remind themselves of. But but also they're confessing this narrative, and so what we're gonna what we're gonna read together is what the church has been um, believing. I was explaining to my kids today t- tonight at dinner more about the Apostles' Creed and just kind of helping them try to see like Christians, all Christians, Orthodox, you know, or uh, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, all of us can can go back to this and go, yeah, we're all on the same page here. And so that's a pretty rare thing when you get Christians to agree about something. Um, but we're going to read this together and confess this um, tonight. And, and we're going to confess this. This is the narrative by which we believe reality is and, and the thing that we're living by, um, by who God is and Jesus is and what He's, what he's done and who we are. So um, I will start and then you guys jump in. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. 
Amen. So let me pray. God, thank you for this creed. Thank you for um, our extended family who, who took the time and sat down and pinned this beautiful piece to help remind us of who you are and, and what we believe in you, what your, what your word teaches, what your revelation has taught us. Um, and I'm also thankful for just the, the calibrating effect that, it, that this has on me whenever I confess it to be true. When I say, God, this is what I choose to believe about you and about life and about what, who I am. And so I'm thankful for that and I, I ask that you would use our time together uh, to just further the purposes you have for us. Help us to, to hear, hear from you and, um, and may we be changed because of that. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the section I have is the, whatever it is, the fourth, yes, fourth and fifth verse down, uh, line down, is who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So I believe these are, this, this one is particularly pretty important, um, and I'll, I'll talk about why I think this one might be the source of possibly why doctrines were created and um, what, what this is confessing, I think, is, is I think at the heart of where doctrines come from and even possibly why we even have a creed in the first place. And so I'll explain that a little bit later. But um, So here's, here's what we're confessing. Here's what they were confessing. Here's what we are confessing uh, is basically these two things, and I'll, I'll get into them more. That his birth was truly divine. And that his birth was really human. Truly divine and really human. So, under truly divine, there's a couple things that was really helpful for me when I... Uh, let me start my... There you go. When I was kind of doing the study that was really helpful, this, this one particular author talked about something that really kind of helped put some things in perspective for us. Um, to help me understand what they were not confessing when they said this. So, the, the, biblical, the biblical idea of conception was different than our understanding of conception. Say, obviously, the same thing's happening, but, but there, when we talk about conception, the modern understanding of conception, we think of science and biology. Uh, we have the, the union of male and female cells together, you know, producing a child, and so the child has some of the male's, you know, genes and some of the, the female's genes, and together they don't have 100% of either one, they have some of, of either. And so, but biblical understanding of conception was a little different. It was, it was male implanting seed, and female was like more of like soil that was cultivating and nourishing this male seed. So their understanding of it was this is the, the, the father's child in, in, in the mother. It's an interesting um, concept, but the point is that when, when they were confessing this, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit, they were, they were seeing what that meant as this is God living in Mary. Um, this isn't half God and half human. Um, this is God, and, and we'll talk a little bit about, about that here in a second. But I think that was, that was helpful. Um, the, other, the other obvious thing that, that, that we'll get into here when, when we jump into Luke is that God is the ultimate initiator in the Bible. Like throughout the Old Testament, God initiates. God is the one who calls, who creates, He he moves, he speaks, he pursues. And so, especially when it comes to fertility, God is the one who makes things fertile or makes things barren. And, and so this perspective that if something is barren, if a woman is barren, or if land is, if there's famine, that God is over it, God has ordained it, God is causing it at some level, and not at some level, he is, he is over it. And then when, when a woman becomes fertile, when land becomes fertile, then God has done something. 
God has initiated this. God has moved in this. And so you have theme, the theme of barren women um, all throughout. You have Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah. In the Old Testament, you have Elizabeth in the New Testament with John the Baptist. And so God is a giver of life. God is the one who provides the Son. And so right away we see this God is the one moving. God is the one acting. And we'll see that in the story in Luke here in a second. But think about how important that would have been to an agricultural community where you have flock and, and family and harvest, all of it are required on if something's fertile or if it's not. If, if it's not, then, then life as they know it doesn't continue. God has to come through. God has to provide. And we'll, we'll look at a text in Habakkuk at the end that, that kind of shows an example of this. Um, and, and, and gives an example of when they don't see provision, then what? Then what do you do? And we'll talk about that. But they believed, this, so when I say they, it's really our extended family believed that, that um, they were completely dependent on God to provide for everything. And that he was the one to come through. He was the one to res- rescue and restore. So fruitfulness and fertility all of these things were divine gifts from God. And so when he says, when it says, conceived by the Holy Spirit, it's speaking to the divinity of Jesus. But his birth is also really human. Um, one of my favorite things that I learned in this theology program that we used to do at the church when I first moved here was, was how doctrines were, how doctrines came to be. I think, I think without thinking about it, here's how I thought doctrines came to be. We read the Bible, and it says, sanctification is this. And we go, oh, that's the, the doctrine of sanctification. It's right there in Matthew. It says right there. Or it's in Thessalonians. Or, or the doctrine of um, Jesus, like who Jesus is. It just says it clearly in Scripture somewhere, and that's where we've got the definition. And that's actually not really how it, it worked. I, I guess I just imagined it's there somewhere. I, even though I had read the Bible, I knew it. But... So when, when it was explained how doctrines kind of came to be, it made, it made a lot more sense to me, and it brought real context to the early church. And so here's kind of how I think this happened. Um, you know, come the middle of the second century, you have different ideas about, specifically, the identity of Jesus is, is kind of starting to come up. And so the church has... The Old Testament, they have these letters that have been written, the Gospels, they have you know, Paul's letters, John's letters, and they have these letters that have been circulating. They say these things, but then other people are saying other things. So, so Jews had a really hard time with, and, and we remember this in our time in Israel, Jews had a really hard time with believing that Jesus is God because God can't die. So that, that is a big one. So, so God isn't, Jesus isn't God, He was just man. You know, that's the Jewish mindset. And then the Greek mindset was the opposite. In some ways, it was, no, we're okay with God, Jesus being God. We're just not okay with Him being man because God would never condescend to just put on flesh. Yuck. That's, God would not lower Himself so much to do that. So the Greeks had a hard time with His humanity. and So you had Jews wrestling with the divinity and Greeks wrestling with humanity. And, and so the Christians had to kind of go to the letters and search the scriptures. And I loved, I loved the fact that they didn't, they didn't conclude these things based on their logic or based on their, um, their preference. They just they said, okay, um, so the Bible says there's one God, right? But the Bible says that the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So... Trinity, you know, it, and they and they have they had no there's the word Trinity's not in here. They had to like create a word to explain God and understand God. So they realized, okay, God, Jesus is God. It says, I mean, the Gospels, the, the these letters that that we believe are inspired by God. So all of this points to that Jesus is God, but it also says he's man and. It doesn't seem to say he's half one or half the other. It says he's fully both. How do you have 100% man and 100% God in one thing? That's 200%. That doesn't, doesn't work. And so, but, but they, again, they're not going based on 
what they've experienced or their logic. They're just going based on what it says, and so they're having to hold these things in tension. They realize we can't, we can't say he's half God and fully man because it says he's God. He can't be half God. He's all, and then so they they start wrestling with this. They realize they've got to hold these things in tension, and so that that forced them to start to define some things about what the scriptures say about who Jesus is, who God is, and what we believe about Him. And so, the the heresy of the day, which Drew mentioned a couple weeks ago, I don't know if, if Anthony talked about last week, is Marcionism, which was which was more of a Greek influenced heresy, and they had a problem with Jesus's um, his humanity. They they didn't they didn't believe this idea of Jesus being being man, and so the creed is highlighting the fact that. He's human. He was born in the flesh, and he was born of a specific person, and her name is Mary. So Mary's name is mentioned, I believe, to, to highlight Jesus' humanity, not to elevate her divinity. And so, um, you know, and that is a summary statement that is loaded, um, obviously, because there's a whole group of people that, that have they've kind of believed that in order for Jesus to be sinless, Mary must have been sinless, and so she must have been immaculately born. You know, she can't be born into sin in order for her to have Jesus who is sinless, and so they, they, they believe they have to have Jesus, Mary as sinless. We really have no proof of this, other than God says, you are favored, right? And so even when you read Mary's words, if you read in Luke um, you see Mary's, Mary's words. She describes herself as um, a servant in need of a Savior, just like us. And we'll read, her, we'll read that story here in a little bit, and you'll see this. she is an incredible example of, of faith surrendered in the midst of <laughs> some, the impossible. And, uh, so, but Jesus is, is fully human. So here's some... Here's some things about the, the Bible says about Jesus and his humanity that I have scriptures for all these, but I won't read them all. He was born, he grew, he grew tired, he was thirsty, he was hungry, he was physically weak, his body was tortured, he died. Um, he also did things like marveled, he, he, he wept, his soul was troubled, he was deeply moved in his spirit, he, he increased in wisdom and, and, and stature and favor, he had knowledge, he had a will. And he says he came to do his father's will, not his own. Um, you know, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, so Jesus was like us, you know, fully human, like us in every way in order to um, rescue us and redeem us in every way. And then you also have um, wrapped up in these two lines the, the fact that because he was conceived in the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, you have this hint to his sinlessness. And so that would be the one area in which we do not relate. Um, he was sinless. To be, to be conceived of the Spirit, virgin-born, means he did not inherit the sin of, of Adam. And so the, the New Testament emphasizes his sinlessness. Um, and we'll, talk, we'll, we'll look at Hebrews here in a little bit. We'll talk about Hebrews, but we won't look at it because there's, there's a lot. But only a perfect sacrifice can pay for the sin, for our sin, once and for all. And so Jesus is this perfect sacrifice. So his life lived um, sinless, and his death and his resurrection become the focal point of everything for us. And, it, and so the, this creed is, is highlighting this fact that he is sinless. So, I want to take a break just for a little bit, and ask you, um, maybe talk about with a couple people next to you. Um, so we know what, what they wrestled with in terms of Jesus' identity. They struggle with his um, humanity, Marcionism especially. What, what would you say in, in our culture today, a church culture in, in America, which do we wrestle with, his humanity or his divinity? And... How does that, what are the implications of that? How does that affect the way they live for Christ or the way they see Jesus?
So, talk amongst yourselves. Which do we wrestle with? Two by two here. Oh, you got it. Oh, cool. Sweet. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> Rest, we wrestle with divinity. Yeah. 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 He was a good man. He's a good teacher. Yep. And what is that? What are the implications of that? <laughs> well, like what? Because because we struggle with his divinity. Uh-huh. Where where are we hindered? He's he's a buddy that I can hang out with, but doesn't yeah. doesn't really have authority over my life. Yeah. Do you think do you think Sunnybrook's culture is? The same? Oh. Yeah. You think? Well, I mean, could we could we swing the pendulum the other side? Like, like not talk about his humanity enough? I don't know. So, what you guys, what you guys think? Our culture in general. What do you think we struggle with the most? Struggle with the divinity. Yeah, that's kind of what we said over here. Yeah. Divinity that our culture in general. You guys, I heard you talking about specific Sunnybrook culture. Oh. Okay. And she said that she'd probably flip there, right? Yeah, I think it was a little more flip. It was kind of that, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus, you know, like making him our pal kind of thing, as opposed to him, to the sacrifice of his using the divinity. divinity. Yeah. Whereas that's something that we felt was coming to Sunnybrook as just more of a lifting Jesus and God, almost to a sometimes forgetting, oh, this, the humanness of it. Yeah. What, what? What is the what's the implications when we don't emphasize or we don't highlight or talk about the humanity of Jesus enough? You think? Because what they're saying is that maybe Sunnybrook, if we emphasize one, we might emphasize the divinity more so than the humanity. I'm wondering what what the implications are there. What do we lose? I guess. Yeah. 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 To relate, and, and specifically, even in the area of holiness and sinlessness, like to realize that Jesus uh, did much of what he did, I think, miracles and like morality, even like ethically and all that stuff, by the power of the Holy Spirit. His ministry was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And we tend to chalk him up to like, well, Jesus is God, so he did this stuff and he lived this great sinless life right. because. Yeah. And it's because he, he did it by the same Holy Spirit that he gives to us. You know, yeah. we just throw out the humanity side. We, I think we, 
we let ourselves off the hook. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Make excuses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we really make an excuse affect the relationship. Yeah. Uh, can you say that? And I, I think back, I had a friend that grew up Catholic, and um, it was a really tough period in life, and um, kind of hit some depression, and so kind of trying to talk about prayer and all, and it was just very difficult because he was, because of how she viewed God and Jesus. Like it was, I don't think she realized that. He's so distant. He's not. He's not imminent. And that's so. The very first thing under you know, where we see this in scripture, is the one. The one I want to look at is the incarnation. So turn to Luke chapter one. Because I mean, the incarnation is 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 a is a big deal um, because it's God with us. It's God coming and putting flesh on and walking where we walk and you know struggling with what we struggled with. Um, so it is a big deal, relating to Him. There's a verse in, in Hebrews we'll, we'll talk about later. So so I'm going to just kind of give you a heads up. Under this section, I'm going to talk about the Incarnation. I'm going to ta- talk about the virgin debate, um, the, the idea of Mary being a virgin, and if that was prophesied and how. And then I want to point out a couple of scriptures that speak to His divinity and humanity. So, the Incarnation, Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, um, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of God, or sorry, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now I wonder, as I was reading through, I never really thought about this, but what if Mary never asked this question? What if she just said, okay, and, and he, I mean, would he have left? Would he have continued? Would he have explained what's, how this is going to work? I don't know, but she asks a really good question. Um, uh, how will this be? <laughs> I am a virgin. How is this possible? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the, therefore, the child to be born will be called the Holy, called, called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is a sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And he ends there, and Mary says, "Behold, I am the servant of the Lord." Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Um, there's really so much there. Um, I, I've never preached through this text, and so it was really kind of fun to, to, to read this over and over this week and, and think about like the implications of a lot of this, which we'll talk about towards the end. But one thing I want to point out that was really helpful um, to learn that gives you some context to what's happening here, um, the presence of God and the glory of God, and the history of God's glory um, throughout, throughout His people. And so, this word, when it says, um, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, that word in the Greek is the same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. So, when I, when I talk about the Septuagint, the, um, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was originally in Hebrew was translated into Greek. And so, in, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, it's, uh, God has given instructions about the tabernacle, and then it's completed, and when it's completed, 
a, a pillar of, of smoke comes down and fills the temple. It says it's settled on the temple. And so the verses, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, I said temple, I meant tabernacle, the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord, also known as the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So that word settled on it is the same word and idea used for um, overpower or overshadowed you. Like he will overshadow you. So there's, there's this connection there to the glory of God, the presence of God. And so if you know that story, you know that, that God um, designed their camp around his presence. So the tabernacle was right in the middle. He had, he had specific places where he wanted all 12 tribes to be, and it was all surrounding this, this tabernacle so that anybody at any time could look and know where God is. God is right there because there's either fire or there's smoke. His presence is with us. And when it would move, they would go, oh, it's time to move. And they would pack up and they would follow God. And so his presence was with them. And then you fast forward to when Solomon builds a temple. He completes a temple and a fire rains down and consumes a sacrifice. And so you see God's presence dwelling in the, in the temple. And then um, fast forward several hundred years to exile and Ezekiel in Ezekiel 10 has a vision where the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. And so he talks about this. And so we know that because of Israel's covenantal unfaithfulness, because of their idolatry, all these things, that God's presence was removed um, from, from them. And then we know that uh, later on, they're released from exile. They're, they're allowed to come back. We have Nehemiah because Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the wall. We have Ezra because Ezra comes back to rebuild the temple. And so they finished the, temple, the second temple. They finished rebuilding the second temple. And it paled in comparison to the original. And when it was finished, nothing happened. And it even says in the text that old men that were there, that were alive when the old temple was alive, they were crying while everyone else was shouting. They were crying because they had been and they'd seen the old and it paled in comparison and, and especially the fact that there was no visible presence of God. Where was God? Had He left them? That's, that was what was going through their, their minds. And then in Ezekiel 43, he has another vision about the glory of God um, coming and filling a new temple. And then so you fast forward and you have this, this story of this of the Holy Spirit coming and overshadowing and filling Mary. And in, in Jesus' ministry, in His transfiguration, same words used, God shows up and says He overshadowed them. And He speaks out of the cloud. Peter's, Peter's doing his thing. Hey God, should I set up a temple for blah, blah, blah? And God, all of a sudden, this cloud overshadows them. And this voice comes and says, This is my son whom I love, listen to him. And then you fast forward into the day of Pentecost and tongues of fire coming and the Holy Spirit dwelling in his people. And so you have this rich history of the glory of God, the presence of God coming and being known and being manifested and being um, uh, filling. And so we know Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Which, which we'll talk about here. So that was, that was a really interesting connection that was kind of woven throughout the, the Scriptures. The second thing I want to talk about is the virgin debate. So in Matthew's account of this, Matthew, Matthew's account of the, the birth is from the perspective of Joseph. So, and Luke's account is from the perspective of Mary. We think maybe Luke had some interactions with Mary where he was able to get some firsthand knowledge about what, what took place because he seems to go in a lot more detail. Um, but Matthew's telling the perspective from, from Joseph, and he says this, and it's, it's in Matthew one twenty three, when the angel appears to Matthew and tells him, hey, your wife is pregnant, don't divorce her quietly. She's pregnant with the Holy Spirit's, you know, God had come on her. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he quotes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. So, the word virgin 
in the Greek that's used is the word parthenos, which means virgin. It doesn't mean anything else. It means virgin. But when you look at the Hebrew in Isaiah 7.14, which is the word Alma used in Isaiah's text, um, even though when you look it up in, in our Bible, it says in Isaiah 7.14, it says virgin. But the word Alma actually can be translated as young woman, young married woman, can mean virgin. It can mean it, it's kind of a loose word. It's not real connected to any one specific idea. It kind of means... But if you read in context, um, you see that the point really isn't about, about her being a virgin. She gives birth to a son and a son. It's about, like, by the time this son is able to discern good and evil, this is what's going to take place. That's the context of that, that passage is about judgment coming. And so if you, want a, if you want a long explanation of Isaiah 7 through 9, chapter 7 through 9, Listen to Jim's sermon back in December. He, we, we were in a series called The Gospel and the Prophets, and he preached through this text, and he explains this really, really well. But the point is, the Hebrew word doesn't specifically mean virgin only. Um, in fact, some even think maybe it, it, he's referring to Isaiah's wife, and we're pretty sure she wasn't a virgin. So, so, but, but when Matthew quotes it, he says virgin. He, he's clearly making a distinction. So how does this work? Is, so does this mean that's not really true? Does this mean Isaiah was wrong? Does, what does this mean? Well, um, another, another thing to, to keep in mind is how prophecy works. So when Isaiah is writing this, he's not thinking about Mary having Jesus. That's not what's going through his mind. What's going through his mind is what God is revealing to him about the specific situation that, they're, that he's dealing with. And God gives him a vision. And so he's giving a specific vision about a specific situation dealing with the people of Israel. And so, but, but then Matthew gets to, through, through guidance of the Holy Spirit, gets to say, when, when Isaiah said this, that's this. Yes, that was true of, it was true in Isaiah's day of, of a young woman. But he's saying, this is Mary. This is what's happening here. And so, it goes from a, gener- a general, generic thing to a very specific thing. So what we believe is that because God is revealing and, and orchestrating and, and writing the, the, uh, um, the letter that Matthew writes, he is the one guiding and directing this whole process. He's making these connections that we wouldn't be able to make. Um, so that's that. Uh, the, the, the last one is, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. I think one of the reasons why it's really easy for evangelicals to um, disconnect from a, a, a greater picture of what it means to be the church and what, who, what the gospel is and how we live this out is when we just reduce the gospel, reduce the Christian life to well, Jesus died in my place for my sins so I can go to heaven. That's what this is about. I mean, all the other stuff is just details, but the point is He died for me because He loves me so I can spend eternity with Him. That's, that's what this life is about. So when, when, it, when like you take the gospel and you reduce it to, it's kind of like, like saying, I climbed that mountain. I don't know if you've ever been to the top of a mountain. Last summer I got to, I got to climb some different mountains when we were in Colorado. And when you get to the top, you don't know you're on the top because it... You, it's like, am I here? Where is the top? It's like this big, it, it's not a peak like you think. You don't climb up and stand on the top and go, I'm on the top. No, you, you take this, there's a trail or it's, it, you know, whatever. You're rocky and you're like, am I there yet? Are we, are we on the top? And then you might find a plaque that says, there's the top or whatever. But it's kind of like saying, I climbed the mountain and only talking about the, just the last little hundred feet and ignoring the, the journey that, that took place, the whole mountain um, itself. And, and I think that can sometimes can just disconnect us from the greater, the greater story of God. And so Paul, he kind of alludes to this. He kind of summarizes the gospel in, in, with real broad strokes. And he describes it from the beginning kind of through the end. But he says, Paul in, in chapter 1, verse 1, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And then in typical Paul fashion, he goes off on what he means by that. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through 
his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So, so now he's dating, he's pointing back to Moses and the prophets and the Scriptures. Like Jesus has been talked about. He's been the plan from the beginning. Um, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Okay, so in light of what we're talking about today, what's he highlighting there? Who was descended from David according to the flesh. What aspect of, what, what aspect of Jesus' identity is he highlighting? His humanity. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. What's he highlighting there? His divinity. By his resurrection from the dead. It's a really, really big deal. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King. So, you have this great summary. You have in this summary, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You have some broad strokes about the Gospel. It's a really, really fascinating or phenomenal um, summary of the Gospel that has His divinity and His humanity. The other one is the book of Hebrews, which we are not going to read. Um, if Kelsey were here, she would try to read it. Um, that's, that's a joke from the last time she taught up here. Uh, she was going to try to read the whole book of First Thess- no, of Second Corinthians, and she thought it would take ten minutes, and it didn't. Um, but So the book of Hebrews d- deals with the humanity and the divinity of Jesus really, really well. It's specifically chapters, I would say, four through ten, give or take. Um, and so it talks about Jesus as... This kingly priest, there's two aspects. This kingly priest in the order of Melchizedek, chapter 7, deals with this mysterious mysterious figure, Melchizedek, and who he was and how he came out of nowhere. And it says he was a king and a priest from Salem. And, and Abraham meets him on the road, and Abraham bows down and pays him a tithe. And so there's been this mystery. Like, who is this Melchizedek guy, and why is our father Abraham paying a tithe to him? Well, Psalms talks about or refers to Melchizedek, and the author of Hebrews kind of points out that Jesus is, he is a king and a priest of, of a different kind. You know, he's not a priest from the order of, of, of Levi, but more from this, the order of Melchizedek. He is, he is this different kind. So why king and priest? Well, because um, as a king and priest, he's not only been given authority to rule over us, but he's also been cho- chosen to intercede on our behalf. So he's this king-like priest that's to rule over and to intercede on our behalf. And then it also talks about Jesus being the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Um, once and for all. That's a, that's a phrase that's used throughout Hebrews. You know, the, the blood of bulls and goats could never t- take away sin. It was basically just a band-aid on it year after year. But Jesus comes and his perfect sacrifice is once and for all. And so... Um, it talks about his humanity. It talks about how he is, un, he is able to sympathize with our weakness. In chapter 4, as one who is, in every, every respect, been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And therefore, he is the perfect lamb to be slain. Um, so any other, just real quick, any other scriptures come to mind for you guys as you think about the, the divinity and the humanity of Jesus? There's some big ones I've left out, but... Yes, Hebrews 1 talks about his divinity. Um, Another big one that talks about his divinity, anybody? It's another chapter 1 in the New Testament. I know Drew knows. Colossians 1 is a big one. talks about his supremacy, you know, that that all things are created by him and for him, through him. Um, So those those are some places you can look. Obviously, the Gospels, as you read about him, you know, walking and, you know, eating and all these things, his, his, his humanity is, is seen a lot more visible. So how does this apply to us? How do we, how do we what, what does his birth have to do with us? Well, looking back at Luke 1, there's some great things that kind of jumped out to me I want to just highlight. One is that God is the great initiator. Um... So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means a lot of things. But, but one, when we recognize that our salvation is not based on what we um, do or who we are, but it's based on who He is and what He did, 
that we recognize that he's the one that has initiated these things. He's the one that has called us. He's the one that has pursued us. Um, it, it changes things. It, I, think it, um, I think it causes us to recognize, like, I, I don't have to try to make this work. Like, there's a lot of times in our, in our, in our life, in our walk, where, where we are wanting things to happen faster than they, than they are. I know this is big with college students because you have a lot of questions. You have a lot of things that are unknown, a lot of, like, what's next? Um, I was just talking to a student today who thought she had a job lined up. She graduated, thought she had a job lined up. I, asked, I texted her and said, hey, how's it going? How's the new job? Turns out that's a sore question um, because the job wasn't really what she thought or it, it wasn't a done deal and they're still waiting to get back to her and she's frustrated and she's left in this kind of waiting period. She's got a lot of unknowns like, I'm just at home. I just graduated college and I'm at home and I have no idea what's next, right? That's big. It's a big um, when you've spent all this time and money and, and then to, to be in this holding pattern. And so we can be anxious about these things. We can go, okay, God, um, what's your deal? Like, hurry up. Let's, I, like, it's clearly that I should be able to move forward and have a job and get what I want. I mean, like, where are you? And, and to be reminded that God is the initiator, that God's timing is perfect, that he's the one at move, moving and acting. It just causes us to go, okay, okay. His way is going to be better. I need to, I need to wait. I need to trust um, I can't manipulate him to move faster than he's going to move anyway. So I can't, there isn't hoops that I need to jump through. God isn't up, up in heaven going, I'm not going to say it, do anything until you say the magic words. Like there's just, there's a posture that it forces us to go, okay, God is at work. He's on the move. I can trust him. The other thing um, is Mary's, Mary's question and then her, then her, faithful action, right? She asks a very real question. Okay, I understand what you're saying. I have no idea how that makes sense or how that's going to work. So how many times have you, like, okay, I think I know what you want me to do, but I have no idea how to do that. Or that just seems, it's, you, you know, when, when the truth of God encounters the mess of our life, what do we do? And Mary's a beautiful example of, okay, I surrender. Let it be how you want it to be. I trust. I'm going to, what you're describing has never happened before, but I'm going to trust that it, you know, you can do it. Um, there's this great section of scripture in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And it's, and it's where I go whenever, well, lots of, lots of things. It, this, this, these verses remind me of how to act in difficult times. It reminds me that there are saints of old that didn't have perfect lives, that, when, that like the goal of the Christian life isn't to have your best life ever. That's not why Jesus came. And so Habakkuk 3 reminds me of uh, lots of things. But he says, and again, think about an agricultural community. He says, though the, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of, of olive fail. And the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. So he's describing there's nothing on the vine, there's no crops, there's no cattle, there's no food, no, and I, I don't see any food or provision of food anywhere. Verse 18, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, and He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on, on my high places. And so I can, I can trust and move forward. And there are lots of Psalms where David is saying the same kinds of things. God, where are you? I don't know where you are. Yet, I will trust in you. And then lastly, this, um, this statement that this angel makes, the very last statement he says to Mary is, nothing is impossible for God. And, and I, I think... In, in Sunnybrook culture, we are really hesitant to, to use this kind of language because we're nervous, maybe, that people will abuse this kind of idea, right? Like, 
they'll they'll tattoo it on their shoulder and they'll apply it to weightlifting and MMA and whatever else, right? That you know. But the reality is, um, Mary's asking a very real question about what seems to be impossible, and God is saying, "Listen, there is no impossible with God." And and I and I think. We need to be reminded of this. I think we can kind of resign to just a status quo. Um, I think we can resign to, like Drew said, you know, when we maybe emphasize Jesus' divinity and um, forget that He lived by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that dwells in us, that we can go, yeah, that was Him, and, you know, I'm allowed to... I mean, we're all sinners, right? So I'm allowed to... And I think we can kind of go, okay, Lord, th- this thing that seems impossible that I'm walking through, this season of my life that seems really, really difficult, um, by your strength and power, I can do what you've called me to do. I, you've given me everything I need to do the things you've called me to do. And you are at work, and you can do more than I can fathom or imagine. And so help me to live in such a way that would trust that as I walk forward in faith, you're going to do things that I can't even maybe see or even fathom for your purposes, for your glory, and, and um, not my own. So I think, I think this, this idea is that faithfulness to Him requires complete dependence and trust on Him. And then I just want to read, um, at the very end here, I want to read Hebrews 10. Kind of in, in going back to this idea that w- when we know who we are and we know where we're from and we know like how we got here, there's something deepening about it. Um, I believe that's true when we know who Jesus is, and we know who He is, and know what He's done and who we are in Him. Hebrews 10, 19-25 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the, by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened up through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, okay, so this is like all the backdrop, therefore, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our, hope, of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's what I take from that, that when we know who Jesus is and what He's done, that it grounds us in something deeper. It, it gives us a confidence um, and assurance of our faith. It, purif- it helps us see that we're pure in, the, in His eyes, purified in His sight. It gives us a hope in turbulent times that it causes us to love and to meet with and to encourage each other. And it leads us to long for Him to return. Let me pray. God, such such powerful words spoken to Mary about Your coming and Your dwelling and you're living and you're dying and ultimately you're resurrecting. There is such life-changing truth in these words. And so I'm thankful for our brothers and sisters of old who sat down and intentionally thought through um, articulating what we believe based on your revelation to us and help us, God, to confess this, to confess you as king and boss of our life, to be reminded, to remind each other of 
who you are and what you've done and who we are and then how we should live in light of you. So God, I pray that this week we would be reminded we would live out these, these truths for your glory and it would benefit others and bring joy to us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for coming.